Chapter 18, Seattle and having a thing. Really packed them in tonight. Hannah and I flew to the home of the original Starbucks later that week, Seattle, Washington. We met Jeff at the airport and traveled for an hour to downtown, passing by forests of beautiful trees. The weather was uncharacteristically sunny, and we thoroughly enjoyed downtown Seattle, riding a Ferris wheel to the top of the cityscape, exploring their farmer's market, and getting delicious seafood. Only slated for two days in the city, Hannah and I opted to walk the four miles from the hotel to the Grand Illusion Theater, where we followed the coast and got to absorb a little more Seattle. On the way, I started receiving a flurry of texts from my family that my sister had just had her new baby, Cole, who was healthy and happy. At least something good happened that night. Jeff would meet us there with Joe Butler, his local friend who played a speaking extra in the movie. He's the guy in PAs who says, Sound guy didn't really know what he was doing. And, Joe warned us in advance the theater was tiny and only sat about 50. We were 45 minutes early and were met only by two festival volunteers who were surrounded by buyable swag. It was otherwise very quiet. About a month before the festival, Tim, the programmer, said to please send multiple exhibition copies and said they would hang up two posters and up to 20 postcards in local businesses. For free. Because it's a film festival and that's normal. He didn't limit the poster size, so I made it 24 by 36, with a tagline and screening date and time information. I also made the postcards. I spent about $120 at Staples after putting up with their print and copy staff who never seemed trained on the plotter. I sent them to Tim, and because of the expense, I asked him to confirm receipt of the materials. He didn't respond, so I called. Hi, Tim, it's Frankie, the guy who made having fun up there. I hate to be a pain, but can you tell me if you got those posters? They were just a little pricey. Yeah, hey, Frankie, I'm uh, I'm kind of focused on the red carpet opening party right now, so that's that's kind of my priority at the moment. Silence. Okay, no problem. Uh, maybe you can let me know when things slow down a little? Yeah, maybe. Now that I stood in this quiet-looking theater, I cognitively reframed. I really just wanted to see one of our posters hanging in a Seattle shop someplace. Maybe take a picture with it, throw up a thumbs up, and feel like my movie has some small life. But I didn't even know if they made it to festival offices. I asked the volunteers if they knew where they might have been hung. One volunteer was a very sweet and very attractive young lady, with what I believe was a UK accent. The other was a laid-back guy with a falseness about him, who asked for my Twitter handle before I introduced myself. Neither of them knew where the posters were, and both lamented that getting anyone to come to these screenings can be tough. There's definitely been a few quiet ones. On their swag table, I noticed that the festival programs were for sale, available for $5. I asked if I could flip through it to confirm we were represented before buying one, and they allowed it. I flipped through the H's, and to my disappointment, saw no having fun up there. I asked if they knew when I could meet Tim, and they said he'd be back in about 15 minutes. Hannah and I wandered down the street in the intervening time, meeting up with Jeff, Joe, and Joe's girlfriend, Kyle. Depression was setting in, as our film was feeling as marginalized and forgotten as it had been in Buffalo. When we returned to the theater lobby, Tim was there, and despite his short nature on the phone with me a month back, he showed himself to be a giving conversationalist and a nice guy. He explained that all the posters and postcards were distributed throughout the neighboring block, but he'd be willing to bet they've been ripped down by now. My energy and money on that project had obviously been wasted. Frustrated, I asked him why we weren't in the program. He showed me that the features were listed in the very front, and that we were there. Corrected, I spent $5 on what may be the only proof that we were in the festival. Hannah cheerfully got some popcorn, and I sat next to a tall guy who was about my age with a big blonde fro. Some chit-chat revealed that he was a filmmaker from Chicago, and his film was screening as we spoke. I asked why he wasn't in the theater. I've seen it too many times. 
Fair enough, but why would you travel from Chicago to Seattle to not experience your screening? You can not experience your screening from home. And having watched my films with a number of audiences, public screenings are always vastly different than watching your movie on an editing bay. You assess the audience and start seeing it through their eyes. You have sudden regrets you've never felt before, or you feel rewarded for sticking with an idea, and sometimes even silence can be revealing, positively or negatively. I think this guy was trying to be cool or something, because it's not cool to watch your own film. Do you know how many people are in there? I asked. I'd say about 25 to 30. I would kill for that at this stage. He went on to explain that he had a few friends in the area that hit the pavement and put work into promoting the screening. I asked what the film was about. It's a feature. It's about a musician who's kind of struggling with... Wow. He had to interrupt our conversation and conduct a Q&A. When he was done, his smiling public of about 30 filed out and walked off into the night, murmuring about how great the film was. I comically and desperately called out to them as they left, but it fell on deaf ears. Stick around for another one, a movie about the exact same thing. We think it's pretty good. Please come, because, you know, it's expensive to fly across the coasts. The cute UK girl laughed and clearly felt bad for me. She joined in. Please come see Having Fun Up There. It's awesome. You've got to see it. She had only just heard of it. Her volunteer partner stared blankly into his phone, unconscious of the world around him. Tim told me that I could begin seating. That meant that Jeff, Joe, Hannah, Kyle, and I could go inside. When Hannah and I first arrived, we introduced ourselves and were given festival passes. But I heard later that the two volunteers at the greeting table charged Jeff $8 for a ticket. I'm the producer and writer of Having Fun Up There, Jeff told them. Oh, great. So it's going to be $8. And aside from Jeff Torelli. Whatever. I paid. I couldn't bring myself to demand a free ticket. It's too close to, do you know who I am? Buffalo might have been empty, but at least the theater was awesome. This theater, clearly marketing itself as Art House, was really just a tiny, dank space with bad projection and a small screen. Just like Buffalo, one legitimate audience member attended, although he was wearing a festival pass around his neck. Thanks for coming. Did you, uh, did you buy a ticket to having fun up there? I asked. No, I, I, I'm a filmmaker too. I made a documentary that, uh, that didn't get into this year's festival. But they give a pass to the whole festival if you submit and don't get in, so here I am. Our screening was scheduled for 8 p.m., well, it looks like you're the only one. Nah, I'm sure there'll be more people. It's 8.01, I said. Oh, yeah, never mind. One of the festival staff stepped in front of the crowd and announced that two shorts would first play, followed by having fun up there. Are, uh, are you the having fun up there, people? He asked. Kill me! I shouted back. The group laughed nervously. The guy said there would be a Q&A afterward, to which Hannah joked that she would be asking me if she can get dibs on the shower. The shorts started to play. The first was called Midlife, a five-minute short about a female office worker whose life is ruined by an office romance or something. It was well shot and even well acted, but truly pointless. The second was called Life Gets Better, and was about a mid-30s man who contracts herpes from his cheating wife and tries to re-enter the dating world. He falls in love with a new and perfect woman who conveniently has herpes, but she fails to contact him to his satisfaction, and he nearly kills himself. To his relief, she calls him right before his suicide, but when he steps outside to meet her, he gets hit by a bus. Which I've noticed has become a comedy cliché in offbeat films. Anyway, it too was much better shot than anything we saw in Buffalo, and a lot of the movie was competently made and performed. I couldn't help but notice we were programmed with the depressing films. Unlike Buffalo, watching Having Fun Up There with another empty crowd and mediocre projection was kind of a chore for me. A few of the festival staff members bounced in and out of the screening, which was nice because it padded the crowd, but few of them stayed the whole time. At the end, Tim came out and really did conduct a Q&A, if only for the benefit of himself and that one dude. 
I spoke to the one dude afterward who told me his day job is that of a counselor, and he has an editing bay at work so that he too, like Mark in the film, can balance a real job and his art. I'm not sure we were trying to say to make art while you're physically at work, but I appreciated the sentiment. He also told us that in Seattle, he saw a lot of patients who were struggling artists, and he provides a lot of the same advice that the movie gives. That was kind of nice to hear. We all made some dark jokes about the experience as we made our way back to downtown. Jeff said the themes in the movie made him feel better about failures like these, because it speaks directly to them. And I wasn't just trying to look on the bright side. I became mostly inured to this stuff long ago. For some of us and some of the bands I was in, it became a point of pride to play with as much enthusiasm to an empty room as you did to a full one. Only three people may have shown up, but it's not their fault no one came, and they don't deserve a mediocre show. In the end, if you're only going to put on your silly rock star moves and headbanging gusto for the nights when the room is full, you're kind of a jerk. This isn't to say it's always easy to get up for a ghost town or that I always was capable, but all of your doing art for art's sake becomes nothing but a loser's mantra if you can't keep your mind focused on doing what you do as well as you can as often as you can. It doesn't matter, Hannah told me, all jokes aside. It never mattered how many people showed up. I felt like she really cared about me when she said that. The next day was a tourist day for Jeff, Hanna, and me. We took the monorail to the Space Needle and took a fascinating underground tour of Seattle. Originally, Seattle's streets and buildings were built at far too low an elevation and had major sewage level and flooding problems. During high tides, sewage would flood your toilet if you flushed, so local newspapers would post what times you should go to the bathroom and what times you shouldn't. The old underground sidewalks had been preserved for historical purposes, and we got to walk around and learn about them. After spending some time with Joe at a hip, nacho, hot dog, pinball place called Shorty's, Hanna and I went to the airport, now in a solemn, tired, and cranky mood. We arrived in Boston at 6.30 a.m., and yes, I was feeling stupid, so I put in a full day at work, trying to catch up on the obnoxious amount of messages waiting for me in my inbox. Our screenings were failures. But without getting accepted into Seattle, Rhodes Film Distribution, which I have now signed with, wouldn't have reached out to me. The jury is still way, way out on how that will go, but the small success I have had shows me that the coolest things happen in an iterative way. When I was in high school, I made a short film called Lord of the Rings by George Lucas. I made it because I was taking a high school video class, and the teacher, who was hardly creative, had seen a few viral examples of Star Wars and South Park animation mashups. Make one of those, he wheezed. Make, like, a Star Trek South Park thing. I hated the new prequel trilogy, so I took the opportunity to make an animation lambasting George Lucas, comparing his work to the excellent trilogy being released concurrently at that time, The Lord of the Rings. It won second place at a cool regional contest, but three years later, when this little thing called YouTube took off, I uploaded it as one of my many short films, and one day it was on the front page. My email crashed with notifications, and it became one of the early viral comedies of YouTube. Years after that, a documentary about Lucas was being shot, and they wanted to interview me as a fan and satirist. The producer turned out to be Robert Muratori, the cinematographer of Cannibal the Musical, the film that made me want to be a filmmaker. I'm now friends with those guys, and they've appeared on my podcasts, and I continue to do work for them when it comes up. I tell the story as an example of how simple activity leads to cool things. Jeff's right. The themes in our film reminded me where my heart should be, but naturally, I want the films to be received, because they're made to spark discussion. To my gratitude, I've established a few hundred people on this planet who anxiously await my new projects, and many of them I befriended one at a time, introducing my work to them through free copies or interesting them with my behind-the-scenes material. Some are legitimately confused as to why a negligible amount of the world has heard of Red Cow Entertainment, but it's obvious. 
We're producing content in a content-saturated world, and maybe that's okay. Maybe who cares? Maybe Red Cow Entertainment doesn't exist at all without cheap cameras, intuitive editing programs, and web distribution platforms like YouTube, all of which contribute to the saturation. Maybe, despite all the wheel spinning and anxiety, I've achieved far more than I could have ever expected, having made these films at all, and even winning over a few fans in the process. Maybe the 10,000 hours I've surely put into filmmaking in the past 15 years have not been a road to genius, as Malcolm Gladwell described, but a road to satisfaction and happiness. This is where I've got to get real with you folks, especially the filmmakers. When you go to art school, which implies that you were actually pursuing art as a paid career, you're going to be the butt of a lot of jokes about how your profession isn't real. Rightfully. Nina went to nursing school and is now a nurse practitioner. Some days she tells people they're going to die. She treats mental conditions and spine injuries. I write movies about Hugh monkeys and then feel cheated when Netflix doesn't want it. Artists like Mark from the movie and I are often considered to have fake problems and unnecessary angst, stressing about our art when the majority of the world was mature enough to pursue practical careers. In time, both Mark and I grew up too, realizing that personal art and a career can, and so often need to, exist concurrently. Art certainly holds a strong and significant position in society, but I'm not going to waste my time explaining why I think it's as valid as treating neurological conditions or constructing new buildings or teaching young people. The only thing that's important to me is that I like who I am when I'm making a film. Worrying about Carla's motivation or trying to find the right musical cue or trying to book time to record a podcast is always in the periphery of my thought. When I spend time away from art, I feel run down, even sick. I feel complacent and neutral, like I'm not communicating with anyone. When I'm making art, especially a large-scale project like a feature film, I'm meeting new people, traveling to new cities and countries, learning new technology, writing books, and watching small ideas turn into tangible, visible accomplishments. I'm forcing impossible-looking feats to become real, and often rapidly. That all happens with or without a good turnout at a film festival, or whether Netflix wants me or not. Hannah's right. It never mattered. I can only counter that it, it would be nice. There's no one-size-fits-all. The second people start telling me what length my film should be to assure the best chance to be programmed at a festival or commenting that some theme in a story is really hot right now and should be expanded, I glaze over and get a bit grumpy. Because I'm not trying to please the biggest amount of people. Having fun up there is about an hour, the dreaded time frame people tell me over and over again that festivals hate. So what's the alternative? We cut out stuff we really like or add things we don't to make it more marketable? How is that in service of something we put so much effort into? The movie is exactly as long as it needs to be. And the moment I start expanding on a theme and a story simply because it speaks to a certain demographic that may make it more marketable, I've betrayed what I'm doing and have admitted that my instincts mean nothing. I'm putting together a product and not creating things exactly as I want them. It's a constant game of compromise with yourself. We all have to do that in our nine to fives. Why do it in your art? I have to sink or swim with what I think I should be making. Sure, give me a truckload of money and tell me to write a rom-com and I'll gladly do it. And I'll add every trope you tell me and take every hot demographic into consideration. When I'm getting paid, I'm getting paid. If I'm doing it for myself, I'm going to make it just how I want it. Because when writing or editing a project that is 100% your own, changing your vision for this kind of thing is in service of money and people who don't currently exist. Embrace having no money and no following. It can be bleak, sure, but it's often very, very liberating. Even if you are trying to make it, your best bet is having a clear vision of your own, staying true to it, and not following something that's already been done a billion times.
Sometimes when a project is mounting, I get worried and even a sense of dread. It's exhausting climbing that mountain. But Nina reminds me that I'm happiest when I'm at this. Conversely, several years ago, Nina discovered fitness as one of her first true passions, and eventually veganism. For as long as I had known her, she lamented not having an identity-defining hobby or love, and fitness and nutrition filled that void. Anyone who's seen a picture of me knows I'm not vegan, and I'm so-so on the principles and ideas involved. But I remember being thrilled for her when she discovered that veganism was right for her. It gives her something to be politically and socially invested in, something to get happy about when she finds a vegan bakery, and something to be frustrated by when people ask her, where do you get your protein? It's crucial to have something to be frustrated by and events to look forward to. I stand by the angsty, first-class, and socially insignificant problems of my art. It's my thing, and it's been my thing since I was a preteen. I'm grateful to have a thing. Not everyone does. If you don't, Shake off your complacency and go find something to be pissed off about because the adventures are unpredictable and often bookworthy. Just never hire a producer's rep.